This is the SEN Talks podcast from Galdard's SEN. Hi, everybody, and uh, welcome to our podcast, uh, Talk to Me, uh, ASD and Social Communication. We've got the wonderful Helen Pearson here today uh, with us, who's a speech and language therapist, and we've got Adam with us um, as well. And we're going to be talking about uh, autism and social communication today. So, Helen, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Um, do you want to explain to us, first of all, first and foremost, to some of our parents, what a speech and language therapist does and that's maybe a simple question um but i think sometimes with our parents our moms and dads who have, are coming to this brand new all these experts that they're faced with so if you could just tell us what it is that you do with children to help them yeah no problem so um speech and language therapists i guess could have a different title we could be called communication therapists so we're interested in anything that involves communication and interaction um It's the sort of practical, how things are said, using language, finding the right words and understanding, but it's also all the subtle bits of communication around non-verbal skills, facial expression, um, making friendships, um, understanding the wider world. Um, There's an element of speech and language therapy that obviously covers swallowing and the more physical aspects of communication as well. Um, But in terms of with early years and particularly around autism, it's very much about communication as a whole. Yeah. Okay. so we know with um, and Adam, you'll know this as well, with our children who have a diagnosis of ASD, um, there will be in any reports that our our parents get and and that you write and, and you speak to. Our children with ASD have difficulties with social communication. Mm -hmm. Now, what is, again, for those parents who who don't quite know, what is social communication? What does it involve? And why do our children with ASD find it difficult? Okay, that's a big question. (laughs) What is it they struggle with? Because I know that, for example, my my clients that come to me, I know Adam's the same with you as well. they say, well, they don't really interact with their peers. They interact with younger um, children. They don't talk. Yep. They can't understand facial expressions on cue, etc. So, what? Why do they struggle with things like that? And you know, what mm. what can our parents look out for yep. when they know that there's something going on with their child that not? It's that such a chicken and egg question. It, it is. Yeah. It is very much. I mean, I think. I would say in those early days, perhaps, you know, pre something more formally being diagnosed, those gut instincts of parents are key. Um, You know, for young children who are having social communication difficulties that may lead to a diagnosis, but may not. It's it's how they are seeing the world and how they communicate with the world themselves. So for some children, they find it quite overwhelming communication being around lots of other people and all the interaction that's involved in that and so they will withdraw from that social world for others they've got all that social desire because that is generally what most young people will have but they don't get how to do it (laughs) and they don't understand the rules that come alongside of of learning to communicate and interact with people and so they sometimes miss the mark Um, and that's where we might see the slightly more unusual or quirky behaviors but it's still them communicating but they just do it in their own way and it it's it might not fit in with the neurotypical model of the things we expect perhaps younger children to do, but it is still communication, which is really key. Um, but there will always be, potent, you know, that that small group of people and children who will withdraw from that 
and 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 be quite anxious, wary, avoidant, or just not picking up on any of the cues around social interaction. So they're the ones that are quite hard to connect with. I think from my point of view, like when I talk to um, a lot of parents, the thing that they may kind of struggle to get is, you know, when we're talking about autism, it's such a big spectrum. And so their understanding of, say, speech and language needs might be that someone can't talk um, or has an, or can't understand what's being said to them. Yeah. And that kind of understanding that actually, as as Helen was saying, that communication is kind of key to everything. And I remember with, um, obviously, I've been doing this for many years. I've, I've been a, a lawyer in this area, I think, for about 16 years. Or maybe I was a paralegal and then became a lawyer in that period of time. But I can't quite remember how, how long it is. But, <laughs> yeah. You can't quite remember. <laughs> I, I doing this area, you, you read a lot of reports. You see a lot of the stuff. We talk about it a lot at Tribunal about communication. And then you kind of see it in practice and it's very different. Yeah. And seeing the paper reports and, and seeing it in person and is different. And yeah. I always say to people, when I with my own um, child who has a diagnosis of autism, um having the understanding of what the difficulties do versus the reality is like doing your your, your theory driving test mm-hmm. having that understanding of how to drive but not driving yeah. um and whilst you know the kind of theory seeing in practice is very different yeah. um so like the classic one we had with our own child was um you know he's he's kind of acting out he's hitting out other kids you know, he's just got these behavioural difficulties which come out of nowhere. Yeah. And we had to sit there with the the nursery at the time and say, well, you know, behaviour like that doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's usually a form of of communication, and yeah. it's about kind of unleashing that. Yeah. Um, and it can be really difficult, I think, with autism that it's it, sometimes it's really obvious almost from birth that someone has difficulties. Yeah. But because the spectrum is so wide, you can have very high functioning kind of children with autism. They get picked up much later, yeah. um, particularly girls, I think, mm-hmm. um, and kind of understanding the subtleties of the kind of social communication and how that impacts on that person. It's quite difficult. And yeah. I think I think we're better at diagnosing now. But I think when yeah. um, I came into this area, there was that problem with, oh, this child has oppositional defiance behaviours. Mm-hmm. And actually, it wouldn't be that at all. Mm-hmm. It'll be them trying to communicate and not being able to do so. Yeah. Um and I think we're, the, the kind of main area at the moment we're seeing a lot of kind of information coming through is like how differently, say, girls of autism are to boys yeah. Yeah. and how tragically, I think, we are finding ourselves in a situation where there are a lot of young adult women who yeah. had never been diagnosed properly until yeah. much later on. Yeah. I mean, the impact on their mental health and yeah. their yeah. relationships is massive. Yeah. You saw that recently. Yeah, I don't know if you, if you guys saw but with um Helen McGuinness's yeah. life and she did a documentary, I think mm-hmm. it was really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and how, you know, she found social communication difficult and how she was always mirroring sort of other people in order to, mm-hmm. to cope. Do you find that that's common with young people, young girls and boys? Girls and boys, but especially girls, yeah. You're, I mean, again, I think it's becoming a lot more known about the idea of masking. We hear masking yeah. used all the time. Yeah. 
Um, and it's, you know, it's a phenomenally good coping strategy for young people yeah. at the moment they're doing it. Yeah. Um, it's how they get by. It's how they get by in a situation that's overwhelming or it's bombarding them in their senses. And um, but it's not a healthy thing <laughs> in the long run yeah. because it takes such an amount of energy and and effort to mask yeah. and try and manage those responses. Yeah. Um, and like I say, sometimes for some young adults out there, they've been doing that for years they fly onto the radar, don't they? Because then you, you ask school, um, you know, how's you know, how's Tracy doing at, at school? She's fine. She yeah. sits at the back, she's doing yeah. her work, she gets she's not, you know, she's not the most academic, struggling a little yeah. bit, but no problem, no nothing. But at home, she's or he's mm-hmm. breaking down, having tantrums, not doing anything. It's because I suppose that's where they feel safe. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's probably the most that's been the biggest shift of referrals coming to me is that that sort of group of young people yeah. who have have been invisible at school to yeah. some extent, um, not picked up on um, and often the tipping point of those big changes. So whether it's starting school or whether it's moving to the next school or changing schools yeah. and that's when things just start to unravel. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's something that's mm. increasing. I definitely. don't know if it's a trend, but I certainly have noticed basically when we had lockdown and that period of time where children were off school for a long period of time and then we had them coming back to school particularly with secondary school students um, we're talking about girls or young people with mm-hmm. autism that's where there's been a lot of kind of breakdowns of placements yeah and kind of development of I suppose kind of mental health issues or pathological demand avoidance and you wonder whether that was triggered by that or whether it's always been there and we've just again become much better at recognizing mm. oh that is a kind of response that you might expect from someone who has autism but has never been diagnosed previously mm. um, it's it's really hard with stuff like that i think there's a an issue about communication understanding it like one of the first things i talk to a parent about i say well i think you possibly need to see a speech and language therapist to look at your child's needs yeah often they'll say to me but my my child is very articulate. Mm-hmm, they, yeah. they speak really well. So yeah. there's obviously nothing there. Yeah. And I think Helen's thing of saying, I, I think speech and language therapist or communication specialist is a really good way of looking at it because yes. communication is language and being articulate, but not really understanding the context of what you're saying or not being able to use that in a kind of the wider world situation means that you're not having the skills that you can transfer to adult your adult life. Um, and I think when parents suddenly start realising that, you suddenly think, they suddenly say to you, oh, well, he doesn't really have any friends or she doesn't really have any friends. Or, you know, at the weekend, they're very nervous about going into shops or or other places and talking to other people. And then you see that actually there is a language issue there. And or, or you take them off their area of subjects. The they're brilliant and they're articulate, but only on the topics they yeah. like to talk yeah. about. And sometimes, you know, absolutely. And yeah, they, they can take some time to get <laughs> off. Um, so I, I should have wished this on myself. So I, I, I um, love ancient history. I studied at university, really love the idea of being able to talk about that with my kids. And my son was obsessed with Medusa. And I was like, brilliant, I can do all the Greek myths with him. No, just Medusa. Just Medusa. <laughs> and now I'm like, I think I know every possible fact about the myth of Medusa and the variants of, of Medusa. I'm like, did I just curse myself in this situation? Um, but it's it's that's an amazing thing is you you have that idea and um, and a lot of parents would be like my child is brilliant at kind of science and stuff and it's yeah. like their special skill 
Yeah. But then when you take them off their topic of interest and you say, well, as I suppose relationships with peers get get more complex. Yeah. Talking about science all the time and a peer will say, oh, well, can we talk about, I don't know, um, what's the biggest trends at the moment? It's something different. Um, yeah. They can't. Yeah. And then there's that breakdown in communication. I, so. I hear that as well. Yeah. I get so... Um, I think I've spoken a lot about in 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 my community, so I'm Turkish Cypriot, and sometimes I've got you know I've got lots of friends with lots of children, wider community, and sometimes because of I the fact that I do this area of law, I have people come and say to me, you know, my um, my sister or my brother or my cousin's child, you know, they're really clever. Mm. They can they can point out any capital city and any country for example across the globe but they might talk to any other children yeah um and i just wanted to ask you helen why why is it that you think children with a diagnosis of or maybe not a diagnosis yet um of, of asd have that difficulty with social communication that's a really big question very difficult question to answer well, it, it it is the underpinning sort of classification of autism, you know, yeah. that there is that, that neurodiversity, which means they see and interpret the signals of communication in a different way and using them as well. They they don't see the way the world that perhaps a neurotypical person would. Um, yeah. But that doesn't mean to say that. And I, I mean, they're quite controversial terms, neurodiversity, neurotypical, etc. Yeah. They just are what they are. These yeah. young people, these young adults, they are unique. Everyone's unique. Yeah. And it is a spectrum. And yeah. there will be some that sit somewhere. Everyone probably sits somewhere on that spectrum. It's when it has an impact on their functioning on their well-being on their access to living an independent life that's when yeah. obviously it tips into the need for for perhaps additional support or, or resources or at least to understand a little bit more what's going on for that young person yeah. but the idea of you know that that is the key to it that is what autism is it is a social communication disorder so yeah. something's not not easy for them yeah. um and, and the impact obviously dependent on as well if they've got other comorbid comorbid needs as well yeah. which is really common mm-hmm. um it's it's i mean it's a, they're wonderful people to work with um because i mean from my point of view i i have the luxury of being able to really drill down and be a detective yeah. and pick it apart and then okay. work on those bits that that you know they will respond to and, and make yeah. progress with um not necessarily not to change them <laughs> yeah. but just to support them absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. To, to recognize what um what works for your child and sort of accept that and work with them yeah. i think because sometimes obviously it's a really difficult thing adam and you obviously know to to accept sometimes when initially but I think it's mm. for our parents and we, you know we have parents sometimes that come to us like oh no he doesn't think he's autistic oh no I don't I don't think so. or you know maybe he's got some traits or she's got some traits or something but I think it's important to to help them right to it is I mean it's a really difficult one particularly when you're going through the journey of realizing that say your child is different and they yeah. have those difficulties because you'll get told a lot of things by a lot of people so yeah. with our child when they were really young we got people saying to us Oh, the problem is, is you're not strict as parents. So therefore, this child, uh, our child, he's not responding because they haven't got any boundaries. And we're like, we put on lots of boundaries. Mm, yeah. But they're just the wrong kind of 
the, the wrong kind of messaging um, for our child and what they can kind of understand. Um, and I think the horror for us as, as parents is that kind of thing of going, right, well, we need to be stricter. But actually, that was the worst thing you can do in that situation. Yeah. And actually, the, the great thing about, say, unlucky communication, talking to speech and language therapists and working with them is small strategies can make such a big difference. So before we kind of came onto the podcast, we, I was just saying like there's strategies like now and next, which sound when you read them on a piece of paper in a report, you're like, what does that mean? Mm. I, I imagine it's a strategy, but you don't see it in reality of how it can be quite an amazing thing to change your life. So yeah. now and next is just a strategy where you, you're making it very clear what a child is doing at that moment and what's coming up next. And say with a child with a with autism or a language disorder having that kind of clear language about what is expected of them and what's coming next is so good to bring out the best in them and i think most parents before they get to that kind of realization that maybe their child is different particularly i think with higher functioning asd kids they hear a lot of advice from their parents maybe um so these are these are your first child and often it is um so you hear a lot of advice from parents that of a different generation or your yeah. friends. You see how other kids are kind of uh, interacting. You're like, well, how did that that parent have a child like this and why is mine different? Mm-hmm. And the assumption is it must be down to your parenting. You kind of almost gaslight yourself in yeah. your parenting. Yeah. And I think a big step in the right direction was um, when we actually had a speech and language therapist uh, assess our child and kind of look at that social communication as the first time where someone had mentioned the autism to us as a potential thing which i think for any parent it's quite a hard thing to to hear to start off with um the irony is is once you're more accepting of that and you see the diagnosis and you start putting in all those strategies and all the scientific research which has gone into how you help someone with autism Mm it's it's a kind of game changer not just for your ability to be a parent but also for that child's um, progress. Um, and it's also so helpful for, for the schools that are understanding their needs. So going back to that example of your, your child is hitting kids in the classroom yeah. without any explanation. They must have, we don't know why they're doing it. It must be just a behavioural issue. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting at that meeting and by that time, I knew probably that my, my son was autistic and we were going through that process of assessment. I said, OK, well, bring us back to when this happens and what kind of potentially triggered it. At the time, my son was completely obsessed with trains. I don't know what it is about autistic boys, but they're (laughs) always obsessed with trains. He was in his nursery, they had a train track out, someone took his train and he didn't have the language at that moment to be like, hey, that's my train, I was playing with that. Can I have a back please? So instead he had a meltdown and he went up to the other kid, pushed them over, took his train back. and as soon as you explain it like that, you're like, oh, well, obviously it was the train and mm-hmm. it was a communication issue. Yeah. But if you're not seeing the whole picture or you know what you're looking for, yeah. straight away it's, oh, it's a behavioural issue. But actually, behaviour is always secondary to being unable to communicate from my kind of experience. I totally agree. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and, you know, it's there will nearly always, always be some form of trigger that, that leads to that behaviour, that communication, sending that message out. Yeah. Um, very often it's it's sensory based, um, yeah. but very often it's exactly that. You might not have the language and the skills 
to get that message across and you know a lot of a lot of children and young people with autism you know they need stability they need to feel safe they need routine they need predictability and actually when that's taken away from them in in a chaotic environment and that's life (laughs) chaotic environments can be a busy nursery can be a mainstream classroom can be the supermarket but when that's taken away from them that you know they will go into panic mode um, and they will communicate that so that's what so I wanted to ask you that as well, mm-hmm. um, actually, which leads me nicely on to that question, in that um, we have the behaviours that you both said are, are secondary to the communication. Like We have a lot of when, when kids first come to me, biters, runners, climbers, you know, the, and they're, they're, all of these behaviours are as a result of something that they're not able to communicate or want to or frustrated with something. What are the signs to look out for for, for parents? Not just in young children, but maybe um, in older children, because like we said, sometimes they mask so well that Mm. we only realise later on. Um, And what can we do sort of if we're not having access to those services from the NHS or from our GP or whatever? What can we put in place to help with 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 that? So the first thing I suppose is some of some of those behaviours you were sort of describing there around um, the biting and the, the climbing and the spinning and the running and so mm-hmm. some of those might be sensory based so they mm-hmm. might not just be communication is it when they're reacting to something yes I'd yeah. say it's about communication but the involvement of an occupational therapist would be huge around that who can look at the sensory process yeah. and stuff. Um, in terms of you know, if you're not able to access resources but you're sort of picking up on on some red flags I'll, yeah. I'll often talk about red flags again I see parent instinct to me is a huge thing (laughs) parents know their children inside out um I I can spend half a day or a day with a young person and I'll spot those red flags but for me to be able to then interact with the parent and say tell me more talk to me and then it all starts piecing together all those little pieces of the puzzle um yeah I mean it is challenging to access resources to access that professional support I suppose um there's a wealth of information out there but yeah can get drawn down a rabbit hole (laughs) um so I would I would say as a first instance potentially sort of go to sort of quite well-known um resources for example the National Autistic Society would be a really good sign poster to give you some information as a parent um there you know there, there'll be lots on their yeah. website a lot of they also set up quite a lot of local groups and things like that as well which finding that support network is huge yeah um I think you know to be able to talk to another parent and say you know I'm feeling this because this is hard I'm, I'm hitting a, a tough bit mm-hmm. and for another parent to come back and say totally with you yeah and you I was know, there, I was yeah. there yeah. I'm there we were there you know yeah. it will get better um I think you know if if you've got the strength and the power or can bring someone in to support you with that push push and push for getting that yeah. support yeah, the intervention is so key it's massive and it's it's something that you know i find really hard as a professional when i see that early intervention isn't happening yeah. um I, th- I think as parents we we can all be quite willfully blind to that we know there's a problem but we you, you kind of make excuses in your head about it you're like they just grow out of it or you know yeah. We're just being a bit paranoid. We're, we're kind of yeah. looking for a zebra here where it's just a horse, you know, it's something that they'll get better with. Yeah. Um, and I think with that, you tend to find, particularly with the, I, I find with the high functioning ASD children, that it gets picked up later and then you're kind of almost at crisis stage at that yeah. stage. But yeah. there are lots of resources out there which kind of 
point you to the kind of key signs for early years about mm-hmm. what you should be looking for or maybe what you can see. I think we actually have one on our own. Let's plug the Instagram page. We have it on there. Yeah, um, yeah. I remember reading our Instagram one, which I think we did together. Yeah. And thinking if I'd seen something like that originally, I'd be like tick, 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 tick for 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 my own son. Yeah. Um, there was just certain things like just outside of communication, which might be a key sign. So with with our son, he he used to always, when he was a little child, pick up sand just mm-hmm. between his fingers and keep dropping it. And we all thought it was quite cute, but obviously that's a sensory stimming yeah. behaviour. Um, yeah. And with the trains, like go back to the trains, it was always about the trains going around the track, but it wasn't like the trains were talking to each other. Um, yeah. I think that's that's it's often one of those red flags would be that rigidity, you know, yeah. that that yeah. tendency to want to see things happening in a very specific way. And it could be about a bedtime routine. It could be about that same favourite book that's yeah. read over and over again. But it's always I mean, I would always say to parents as well, um, you know, be very cautious about getting so fixated on that yourself on on something that's quite small. Um, You know, all all young children will be quite rigid at times. All young children will push back and communicate. They're not happy. Um, All young children will probably bite at nursery, you know, all of those things. So that but. But as it starts to piece together and again, following that gut instinct. Yeah. And if you think oh, we're just a bit worried here or yeah. we want reassurance, then if you can access that support, you know, that outside a person looking in, whether it's a speech and language therapist yeah. or even just a really skilled practitioner in, in an early years setting who, yeah. who gets it, who yeah. can just sit down and, and say, OK, yeah, well, let's start painting a picture of this young person put together some of the all the positives let's keep a list to one side of all the things that may be a little bit concerning and then we'll we'll see where we go from there I think if you aren't sure the best thing to do is have someone independently look at it Um, I know because of our older child with our younger child where we were slightly concerned about his kind of language development the first thing we we said is right we have to have someone have a look at him and actually, I think that was more for our own assurance. Okay. Um, and actually, with that situation, there was no real issue there. Yeah. And but it's it's good to just know that there isn't an issue. Yeah, it's peace of mind, yeah. isn't it, really? And I think we learned our lesson with our older yeah. child of saying, trying to say to ourselves, this is something that they'll grow out of, this yeah. is where they'll develop. The thing is, you see some development in other areas, and you say, oh, well, that shows that. There is an issue there. It's fine, yeah. Um, for instance, with, with my own son, he, he was starting to develop kind of play skills and enjoy doing other things other than trains. Yeah. So he was straight away, we're like, oh, we're just overreacting on the situation. Mm-hmm. But that kind of overreacting in that situation and us not doing anything, um, I think that can be quite dangerous because actually that early intervention, bringing that, that yeah. language therapist into that situation would be so kind of key. Um, I think there's a lot of pressure on parents as well because as, as soon as you do, like I know from my friends, sometimes if they stop, they're like, and they they talk to me. I, I don't even have children, but they're like, is this okay? Is this normal? Am I being a bit OTT? Am I being a bit crazy parent? Like, no, you're not. Just say it. Just talk about it. If you know, I'm, I can't really advise on that on that aspect because I'm not a professional. But if you know, if you're really worried. It's probably okay, but if you're really worried, just go yeah. check it out. You know, it's yeah. not it's not a big deal. And just... don't be fearful of it. Because yeah. actually, you know, I I will also. I mean, well, over a quarter of a century I've been doing this, which makes me sound and feel really <laughs> old. But you know, in that time, I've seen so many families where 
at the stage I've seen and spent time with that young person, I've been able to reassure them and say, you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't I can't put guarantees on things, but I'm looking at this young person now and I'm really, really happy with the progress they're making. Yeah. Or we might pick up on other areas of need that aren't yeah. autism. Um, a language disorder is a really prime example. I, I can remember working with a young one, young child many, many years ago who on paper, if I got those tick boxes out, was so classically on that autistic spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and then six months a year further down the line he was so not um he, he was very language disorders you know he didn't have the communication and the language yeah. processing to be able to fit in and get by but that was the knock-on effect with him socially okay. um i think that, that's a really good point I, yeah yeah giving myself a rather embarrassingly as an example here but i'm as Sarah said had a know i'm severely dyslexic um but i think the kind of the reason why i'm severely dyslexic is i had um hearing issues as a child i had a condition called gluia which actually lots of kids have really common huge yeah. numbers yeah. Kids have that. I, I suppose i had an extreme version of that so i had a real damage to the inside of my ear and because of that it's like listening underwater all the time mm-hmm. the problem with that is if you're listening to language and it's wrong one you're reacting to things that you think people are saying and doing when they're not yeah. um the other thing is is you're actually hearing how people pronounce things incorrectly so obviously that impacts on your spelling and everything else. Speech. Yeah. Speech. And until it was picked up and it was picked up in me quite late, I think I was about five or six. Mm-hmm. One of the ways I'd respond to a situation um, was by um, pushing people over and, you know, someone would do something to me and I'd bite them. In fact, I I was suspended, I think, from my first school for biting someone. I was only about four or five at the time. That's, um, well, that's but, very sad. But the, the point there is, is, then I got the grommets in and that allowed yeah. the hearing issue to kind of be addressed. Yeah. But the kind of aftermath of that is I've it kind of impacted on my yeah. my you know, my understanding of how language is. Yeah. And even now I I listen to myself back and I mispronounce so many of my words. And obviously as a young child and when you're learning kind of phonics and how to spell, yeah. If you've heard the, the word wrong in your head, then you're yeah. gonna spell it incorrectly. Yeah. But I think what Helen was saying that's really important, which is I suppose some of the behaviours I was showing was because I couldn't hear properly yeah, and that could be picked up incorrectly as yeah. being autistic yeah. but actually it's another difficulty yeah. so having these things looked at maybe even just having a speech and language the therapist look at a child mm-hmm. is a really good way of yeah. kind of identifying that maybe there's something else there you know yeah. so. that I think that brings me on to sort of my one of my last questions is that for our parents who do have young children um i'd be inclined to think if i didn't know the area you know i'm going to take him to a speech and language therapist he's four five six seven however he's quite young we're going to do a little bit of therapy i'm going to get a report and he's going to be fine and then that's it i won't need your help for the rest of her life or his life how does language and communication especially social language and communication develop young people as they move up and is that the case is it just like a one-stop let's do it let's give you the tools and then you never need to see me again it's fine I think I think realistically if if a young person has a diagnosis of autism or, or any complex communication need I think it would be a very small minority who have a 
a fix there and then and everything's going forward yeah. that said there's some incredibly skilled parents you know who yeah or, or in education settings etc so it doesn't mean to say a young person will get stuck it's it's in it's really rare that I have a young person not always making progress they might be some tiny small incremental steps mm-hmm. but they're always making progress mm-hmm. I think from my perspective as speech and language therapist um and I have the luxury of being an independent therapist so I can put in place and support families that I think that child needs mm-hmm. you know and I'm not restricted into how much or how little I need to do when they're younger I would say it tends to be more um and I'm talking younger younger those sort of early years um because yeah. I think, you know, I'm I'm a support network to the whole family. I don't just work with the child. I would want to work with the parents. I'd want to work with the nursery setting, the child's in setting. Um, and it's about building up a whole resource of skills and just, you know, constantly building on skills to make communication interaction enjoyable for that young person at whatever level yeah. they feel they can manage or, or can achieve. Yeah. I think... It may fade away how much support you're then putting in place. It might be more consultative. You hear that word a lot, I'm sure, where that model of advising those that are 24-7 with that young person. But I'd never not want to be involved. Um, It's what I do. You know, that that constant, I've talked about it before, being, being that detective and picking it apart and trying to problem solve with all the other experts that are involved with that young person that's really important so to look at communication alongside the sensory needs alongside the academic needs as well alongside life skills when they're older yeah so the the sort of speech and language therapy might change it might be quite functional in the very early years about a young child being able to communicate their basic needs going to the toilet thirsty in pain wanting to be away from people whatever it might be and then you might get to a school environment and potentially you're supporting more the curricular language because they don't find accessing language easy, aside from the social stuff. Um, and then you're getting into the secondary level and you're looking much more at the kind of social stuff because hopefully by that stage, you know, there's a good understanding of their academic needs. So language can be differentiated. The curriculum could be differentiated. But the social stuff is a minefield. <laughs> um, and so it goes on. So I think. It's rare that I would have an episode of of sort of care and support with the family and then I'm done and I'm happy and I've signed them off. Um, We may well have long pauses, that's fine, but there's a lot of families I've kept in touch with for many, many years and dip in and dip out. I love it. Seeing a young child when they're so young and then seeing the progress for you as well, Adam, to see see your child as well sort of progress and do things that maybe you can do or say things or, you know. I I think there's two things though. The first one is with with the the families I help legally um, and getting the right support in their EHC plan. That's amazing because you really see usually the journey all the way through. So the best cases is when you're getting that early Mm because early intervention, I, I can't, say it enough is so key to yeah. all kind of good outcomes but if if you're involved in an early stage um, I think from a therapist point of view you can make such a difference and one of the kind of key frustrations I have is you know that's the NHS for this there's the NHS model which is very much a kind of set model so you have a block of therapy and then you treat the issue which has been identified deal with it with block therapy and that's the end of the block therapy and then usually the child has to reapply or be reaffirmed for that um, kind of therapy to come in. And the problem with that is, is as we know, you might address that particular issue, 
but then the child's needs might change yeah. and there might be something which has come out of it which then needs to be addressed after you address that and if you have that kind of block therapy model you're constantly having to reapply to get that support in place and that means that the consistency isn't there with the ehc plan on it i think most parents listening to this will probably know what that is you, you tend to work out what is necessary for provision to meet a child's needs. So if a, a child requires, you know, weekly therapy, half-termly therapy, it's out. It should be fully outlined in the plan. And I think where I've seen a lot of issues with cases, it's not that children are not getting kind of speech and language therapy at a young age. It's just it's not consistent and it's, it's simply not enough. Um, and the problem with that is, as, as Helen was kind of identifying, is if you're not having that consistency, the ability of that person to make progress kind of gets lost. Mm. And I suppose that the longer you allow that gap to to be created in that area of skill, the harder it is to address it, particularly, I think, as a child gets older. We're very lucky we have regular speech and language therapy involvement with our own son. And it's it's so important because with my own son, you needed to address the language to start off with because there was some expressive language and receptive language issues. But then actually his his needs changed more to social communication and understanding relationships. Um, and if you don't have that kind of skill there and you're always having to constantly reapply to have your child seen to, you're waiting for a long period of time yeah. for that input. Um, and you as a parent, there's only so much you can take as strategies. Mm-hmm. You don't really know what you're doing. You're not the experts. Mm-hmm. Having someone like a therapist there, kind of saying, "Right, this is the strategy we're going to use now moving forward," is really important. And also, just understanding your child. So, we're talking about being obs- the obsessions. Um, I remember talking to our therapist and saying, "You know, we go to school every day. Within about five minutes, it'll be on a kind of discussion or topic of an obsession, and it's hard to take our child away from that." So we looked at strategies of doing so. And like sometimes the therapist would just tell you the blindly obvious, which is the reason why our child goes back to that conversation is it's something he's comfortable with and he can't repair a conversation. So he'll go back to the com- com- um, the topic of choice because he feels comfortable with that. And for us as parents, knowing that, then we can use strategies to scaffold and repair that conversation. So we're not going back to that topic of choice, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I think key key to early intervention is is involvement early on. Yeah. I do think it's a lottery depending on what local authority you're in. Dep- depends on how good they are with their the early years speech and language therapy. Some local authorities are very good with them. There's mm-hmm. some local authorities that I would speak very highly with where speech and language therapy is actually going to school almost weekly. But I have to say that's a rarity across the country. Yeah, um, yeah, I think. I think the NHS and CCGs across the country sort of having my LA background is resources are it's a huge yeah, national problem yeah, yeah it really is, is yeah just, just like everything else yeah I think I think we're all agreed here today that a speech and language therapist involvement in any child or young person who has social communication difficulties or language or any kind of communication mm-hmm. difficulties is invaluable and you can really see it um, I remember a, a client of mine, she, she was, um little girl was about four years old, you know, parents didn't really know what was going on as soon as she started the speech and language therapy, so within four to six months, they were like, she's saying, she's, she's putting two words together now, you know, like she couldn't even talk before, and I think it's it's stuff like that that makes you sit up and realise just the important that yeah. your work is, really. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that. And I'd say the other thing, uh, I, I always worry being a lawyer that I'm very pessimistic about things. So I'll take a step back and say, we actually live in quite an amazing age. Uh, when I started in this area of law, parents would, would call me up and say, well, my child is doing this. I don't know what's wrong with them. I'm so worried. And then you'd kind of go through the steps of them. These days, parents will say, I've I've noticed that there's issues with my child. I've been looking at resources online. I think this is where my child's issue is. And usually parents are kind of yeah, really running yeah, on the money with that. But it's amazing that happens. And we were talking about, uh, me and Salah say, about kind of role models. Yeah. Years and years ago, you didn't hear about kind of role models for kind of, I suppose, professional people who are autistic. But now we're really seeing those role models coming through yeah. and those kind of aspiring figures. So we were talking about Anthony Hopkins coming out mm. recently as being Asperger's. Paddy McGuinness's ex-partner, I think, is yeah. coming through as well. Bernie Sykes. Yeah. And, and um, oh, um, Elon Musk. I mean, I question whether that's a role model or not, but <laughs> very successful person, yeah. right? <laughs> Everyone knows his name. Exactly. <laughs> but I think it has, it's it's rightly so, it's it's become a little bit less taboo or fearful than yeah, it was. Exactly. You know, a generation yeah. ago, even when I started first practicing, um, there was a fear around it. I think, mm. you know, there were, you know, how it was portrayed in, in the media and on television yeah. were quite extreme, you know, documentaries that would come out. And I think, yeah. you know, and, and that's when you were sort of mentioning earlier about a different generation, perhaps grandparents yeah. having a viewpoint of what needs to be done and what works and what it's sure. all about. That's because that that's what they were exposed to. It's yeah. becoming much more understood yeah. um, and embraced, actually, yeah. because and they're yeah. amazing young and people. And talked about as well. I mean, yeah. even, even from a multicultural point of view, I think sometimes because of that multicultural element that we have and you know for my culture for example I can't tell you because I'm constantly talking about neurodiversities because what I do is what I love um the amount of of people from my community that I have come to me and say you know no one knows but and then Mm -hmm. they'll explain themselves or a sibling or their child or their cousin or something it's like well I'm always here to listen and I'm glad that you felt comfortable enough now to talk about it and it must be so freeing to yeah. to talk about it with someone else and to seek help and I think what what I'd always say to anybody no matter what background and culture you come from is talk to somebody mm. like even if it's not somebody that you know um about it because it's it's okay and you still they're still your baby you still love them of course um, it's just part of who they are. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the outcomes. So I think the outcomes of children who were diagnosed with autism back in the day, the outcomes in terms of their life as an adult seem to be very restrictive. But I think we're getting so good. At, so not the case. Like, yeah. How many successful people do we see? You know. Yeah, and like we were talking the other day about um, even actors out there who are playing roles as autistic people in films. Mm-hmm five, ten years ago, that wouldn't happen. You'd have an actor pretending to be autistic. And that's so important that we're actually becoming much more embracing of of, uh, disabilities over the the board. Yeah. And we're kind of ensuring that that there is appropriate representation in that way. And I, you know, I've spoken to a lot of businesses out there as well who are focused at recruiting people with autism because they recognise the skills which come with people with autism. 
So yeah. I think when people look at that early diagnosis, the first thing they say is, um, you know, oh, my God, where is my child going? Mm-hmm. What kind of future they're going to have? Yeah. And when I talk to parents in that situation, I'm like, well, actually, there is so much we can do and there is so much opportunity out there. Yeah. We just gonna, you know, with the kind of things like speech and language therapy and occupational therapy and, and specialist teacher input sometimes, it's just unlocking that kind of talent. Totally, for sure. And my sister's a HR executive in quite a large organisation and she's doing exactly what you just said. She's got a big recruitment drive at the moment, incidentally, for um, people who have uh, an autism diagnosis and neurodiversity is coming up more and more. I think she had someone yesterday who... Um, uh, disclose that he was dyslexic, for example, and the help that's available to, to everybody um, is is phenomenal. We live in, I think you're right, I think we're, I think I'm so grateful that we live in the times that we live in. It's that's, getting there. It's I mean, definitely yeah, getting better. there. Yeah. 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 It, I think the thing is, is even when I kind of started up in this area, I think there was a shame for an adult to admit they had any kind of disability yeah. and they would be worried about what their employers and employees would be thinking about them. And I'm really pleased that we've gone the other way, which is I think people are actually becoming much better at kind of recognising that people have needs, accommodating that and realising the kind of potential which comes with it. And I think what's shifted as well, one, one of my other hats that I wear is as a scout leader. And I'm for my district, I'm responsible for inclusion to support our scout groups welcoming young people any young person who's able to access scouting should yeah. and we'll support them to do that and and one of the one of the modules I'll do is go around and work with the young people in groups and it used to be called disability awareness do you know what young people out there are really aware because schools are very mixed very often yeah they, they aren't they you know they, they probably know more than some of their parents do about what disability is inclusion yeah. special needs all that so we've changed it now and we just call it disability thoughtfulness because it's just about, well, OK, then what can we do? What can we shift? How can we just yeah. accommodate and embrace anyone in our society? And actually, young people on the whole, especially scouts, are um, amazing at it. You yeah. know, it's it's really it's, it's out there. But I think, you know, it, it's a scary business being a parent, <laughs> you know, for anyone. It's, it's a whole learning journey. And I think terrifies me. It is worth it, though. But I think. What you want to be able to do as a parent, if you've got a parent with a child who's got additional needs, whether it's autism or whatever it might be, is you want to be able to enjoy your time with that child and not be yeah. worried so much about the bigger stuff. So bring in any support you possibly can, yeah. access everything you possibly can, so that you're spending more time just being mum or being dad. Yeah. Um, I think yeah, that's. I think that's right. I remember reading when we had, were having our, our first child this thing which says you, it takes a village to to yeah. bring up a kid I often think with with kids with autism it takes a whole community <laughs> but I think it I think there is that community out there and there is all that information there's a lot of Facebook groups there's a lot of information online there's a lot of help out there and I think a lot of parents I again spoke to 10 years ago felt very alone but I think now we are better at embracing it and and actually as a community as a society I think we're getting much better at supporting it as well yeah yeah I think that's an excellent note to to finish on actually I think so inspired yeah um thank you so much Helen for coming in today um really appreciate I'm sure all our listeners really appreciate it as well it's so nice to pick your brains and you know just find out more and and learn about what you do Um, and as ever always always so insightful um with us so i'm really looking forward to to doing more podcasts 
and I think it's going to be really helpful for everybody. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Bye.